I'm Gina Kaufman. This is KCUR's Central Standard. And now I'm here with travel writer Rolf Potts, whose newest book is about to hit the shelves. And it's not about the places he's visited, but what he brings home with him. The book is called Souvenir. Hi, Rolf. Hey, Gina. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. What is interesting to you about souvenirs? It's something that people don't give a lot of thought to. You know, I didn't give a lot of thought to it either, uh, at least individual souvenirs. But as I traveled over the years, um, actually at the end of this year, it will be my 20th year as a full-time travel writer, I've written a lot about individual journeys, but there are certain factors that connect different journeys. And I think over time, the idea of what I bring home has uh, affected my travels, my memories, and they've sort of framed how I recall my travels over the years. And they have a sort of, they tell a story of their own that's a little bit counterintuitive. And the more I wrote the book, a little bit existential. I think the moment I knew that I had a book to write about souvenirs is when I learned that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, when they went to Shakespeare's estate in the late 18th century, they took out a knife and carved off parts of Shakespeare's chair to take home as wood chips. Did did anyone object to that? (laughs) They didn't. It was actually part of the souvenir ritual. We think of tourism now as a mass culture phenomenon. Back then, it it was an aristocratic thing. And there was no interpretive information at Stratford. And so the um, the servants, basically, who had been bribed to let them on the estate, gave them a knife and said, this is what people do. Uh, and of course, if 10,000 people a month visit a place, then you can't really do that or else you'd have to supply a lot of chairs. <laughs> well, let's go back to your story. I mean, you grew up in south central Kansas and your first souvenir was from a trip to Chicago. It was what you thought was a seashell. Correct. You know, I, I, I think I was seven years old and I saw Lake Michigan. And unlike the reservoirs in Kansas, I couldn't see the other side and it felt like an ocean. And even though it was a clamshell, I called it a seashell in part because I was wowed by the metropolis of, of Chicago, but also because I was sort of dreaming of points beyond. Um, I, I sort of was hoping that someday I would see an ocean in person. What do you, Take us to that moment where you pick up this clamshell and decide to take it home and, and talk to us about what you did with it and what, this, what it began. Well, it's really interesting. The meaning of that seashell or that clamshell changed over time. I think at the time I was just excited to find anything that seemed like the natural world. I was probably in Lincoln Park in Chicago. Uh, and I and I tucked it away into my day pack, and I displayed it proudly in my room. And I really used it as an object to dream of points beyond, um, which is funny because I've been a travel writer for a long time now, and I've seen plenty of oceans. Interestingly, and this is something that I meditate on in the book, there was a point at which I lost track of that seashell that, or that clamshell that meant so much to me when I was young. I think because I went to college in Oregon, I lived in Asia for a while, and the idea of dreaming about an ocean became a reality, and that object no longer served the present. And of course, now it's sort of sad that I lost track of that seashell because it reminds me of who I was when I was seven, and I think it helps me appreciate the dreams that I had when I was young that have come true in, in so many ways. So that's just one example of a souvenir that had very important meaning at one time, and its meaning has changed over time to the point where it became something that I could uh, cast aside at a certain point in my life. Right. I mean, more more recently, like when you started this book, you had been collecting, sort of subconsciously collecting masks in Asia. Yeah, that's another interesting story. Uh, And some of the social scientists who study tourism say that 
tourists just like masks. Cultures who, who don't have mask performances in their dance drama, they carve masks because tourists ask after, after masks, especially in, in continents like Africa, where there's so many cultures mixing together that uh, you know, one tribe might make masks because they're jealous that the tribe you know, one valley over is selling a lot of masks. In my situation, I, as I was in my earliest travels through Asia, I, every country I went to, I would buy a dance drama mask for my collection. And after about six countries, when I got to Mongolia, I realized I didn't know why I was doing it because I wasn't going to dance dramas. I was just buying these sort of exotic seeming masks in gift shops. And what I realized is that my friend had a mask collection. And when I was dreaming of traveling across Asia, I would look at those masks and sort of dream my way into that further trip. And after a per certain point of Asia travel experience, I didn't really need those masks to certify myself as a traveler. I was having more organic experiences. And so now when I have those masks, which I still keep in, on the wall of my office in Kansas, uh, I don't just think of Asia, but I think of myself as that excited newbie traveler on the continent of Asia, buying masks for reasons he doesn't completely understand. You know, the relationship between souvenirs and the dreams that send you on journeys in the first place seems interesting to me. Like, it seems like you start with a dream and you come home with a souvenir. Yeah, yeah. I was just talking to a high school teacher who brought back a Dia de los Muertos uh, mask um, from Mexico, and he put it in his classroom. And he said it really sparked his students' interest. And I think it's interesting that as wannabe travelers, oftentimes we're inspired not just by the idea of other places, but by these concrete physical objects of other places. I mean, you have National Geographic famously and in, in, makes people dream of other places. But I think when when you're young and you see these objects that have been brought home by your elders, or you visit a friend's house and, and see the uncle who served in the military and, and brought back this you know, really curious carving from another continent, that really makes the idea of other places seem real. And even in the 21st century, when we get so many in, uh, images from places like Instagram, there's something to be said for holding an object from a faraway place and really using it as a way of dreaming yourself into that place. I keep using that word dreaming, but it, it's a recurring thing as I've explored the phenomenology of souvenirs is that it's really used as an object that's bigger than its singular self. Yeah, you write some about the word souvenir and the fact that it's a French verb, actually. Like, we use it as a noun, a thing, but the French verb to remember, it literally means to come back to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it, it, that sort of made its way into English about the time that Jefferson and Adams were carving chips off of Shakespeare's chair, around the time of, you know, when the Industrial Revolution was was sparking up uh, and souvenirs became a really formalized ritual in, in, the, in the tourist industry. But if you go to cemeteries like Père Lachaise in, in France, you'll actually see the word souvenir on tombstones because it's about people go to remember their, their relatives. Um, and so it's only it, in English that it has a more singular uh, purpose as these objects that we collect that are sort of uh, an agent of memory. And uh, a given object will serve memory in different ways over the course of a, of a given lifetime. You know, when you mentioned photographs, that is such a big part of how most people do remember travels and remember just important experiences. But I've read about the science of how remembering something through a photograph works, that when you look at this photograph again and again, the path you take back to that memory kind of gets set in stone. And it becomes hard to remember things 
about the experience outside the photograph. Like the photograph becomes a stand-in for the experience. And I wonder if it is different when you're looking at a less literal thing, like a clamshell. Yeah, well, it's more associative. And I forget, Annie Dillard or, or maybe Susan Sontag wrote really interestingly about how we're looking at the photograph, but we're also remembering the last time we remembered the photograph, right? And it has a photograph has a direct one-to-one relationship with what is being viewed, whereas a snow globe or a wood chip or a clamshell picked up from the shores of Lake Michigan, it has a different kind of energy that you can't just show it to somebody and say, look, this is what I saw. It has a personalized meaning. And in the book, I talk about how when Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, died, his estate found that he had saved some wrenches and waist tethers from his moon mission that I think to him told a story that was completely different than all the millions of words that have been written about the moon mission. And so I think that's really something about the power of, of souvenirs to call forth these associative memories that even a photograph can't stand in for. So in an age of mass-produced souvenirs, how, how is that? Is that the same as carving off your own wood chip or bringing back your wrench? I mean, you write about the gazillions of Eiffel Tower souvenirs that a person can pick up in Paris, for example. Is that the same as your wood chip carving? It is and it isn't, you know, and it, and it created this authenticity discussion. I, I, I dedicate an entire chapter to the idea of authenticity. Is like, is this little trinket that was made in China that depicts a French landmark, is that an authentic representation of experience? And actually, you know, those aristocratic tra- travelers who carved off uh, wood chips from Shakespeare's chair were really irritated by the middle class travelers who came in. One is that there were so many of them that they would destroy those chairs. And two is that they really created a market in trinkets, whereas an aristocratic traveler through his education might buy fine crystal or tapestry that was informed by his education in a certain place like Milan. Uh, a middle-class traveler didn't care. They would, they would take a trinket, trinket that was engraved with the word Milan, and this still happens. But I think in my investigation of souvenirs, I realized that the authenticity that travelers seek really isn't about cultural authenticity, but about a sense of authenticity in oneself, about being away from home, and oftentimes it's the it's the first time travelers, it's the early um, explorers who buy the trinkets. But in a way, the first time we mis- we visit a place like Milan has an emotional power that might be stronger than our more sophisticated self that visits a place like Milan for the tenth time. So as much as we might make fun of the little trinkety, uh, kitschy type souvenirs, uh, snow globes and keychains and such. Um, in a way, it doesn't matter because it's all about the meaning it conveys for the person who went there. And when you think about going to a place like Paris for a person who's been there for the first time, I think it reminds you of the miracle of crossing an ocean and seeing a place that you've dreamt about your whole life. So in a way, for as much as we might look down our nose at some of the cheaper type souvenirs, it doesn't really matter what purpose they serve as a social status because it's all a very internal and personalized thing. You know, I mean... It's interesting to me to think about how all of the memories of your travels come back to you in Kansas, but also when you talk about authenticity and, you know, I don't know, being away, far away from home, it sounds almost like buying souvenirs and trying to find an authentic souvenir is really about trying to make sure you haven't lost who you are, that you're still a real person and not just lost in the identity of tourist. You know what I mean? Is that, as a travel writer, I mean, do you feel like 
you need to be reminded that you are still the you from Kansas? Sometimes, yeah. You know, like if I if I buy or even just pick up a souvenir that I know where it's going to be in my house, you know, sort of part of this object narrative I have back home, it's sort of a connection to the place I've left behind. Um, and a lot of people who've researched souvenirs and the people who buy them, the ritual of shopping for souvenirs or looking for souvenirs is sort of a comfort ritual in a place that you don't completely understand. You can find a containable part of it to hold to yourself. And in a place that you might only be for a few days that has so many more things than you could possibly remember, taking one little part of it, even if it's just a cheap keychain or um, you know an, an empty wine bottle from a, from a fun experience you had, then that's a way of keeping... Um, and honoring what is, in essence, an ephemeral experience. But for all of your acceptance and even sort of honoring of souvenirs, you do have an entire chapter on souvenirs and human suffering. Yeah, I wanted to to acknowledge that because there's sort of a lightheartedness to travel souvenirs. But um, over the course of many centuries of warfare and also some very ugly chapters in American history involving lynching, um, cutting off bodily souvenirs, scalps, fingers, um, which are not meant to be enshrined and kept, but sort of speak to the psychopathy of a lynching event or a war battle. Um, it really creates a complicated situation. And it's something I explore in that chapter. Like if you go to a place like Auschwitz, what do you bring back as a souvenir? Um, and th that the gift shops in Auschwitz have been wrestling with that. Actually, um, the gift shop at the 9-11 Memorial in New York has wrestled with that, is that how do you honor something that's very solemn at the same time, um, you know, giving some the visitors a tangible thing to remember it with. And I also bring up um, well, Mount Vernon. I, I'm curious why, why you think that places like that do have gift shops. I mean, if the experience is so solemn, maybe the place itself is the memory. Well, you would think so, but a refrain I heard often again and again is that the reason souvenirs are offered or the reason a certain type of souvenir is offered is because that's what people want. And, you know, when Auschwitz stopped selling souvenirs, people started stealing parts of Auschwitz. They started taking bits of barbed wire and brick. And so it became a very complicated thing where they're actively trying not to disturb the solemn atmosphere of the place, but people somehow weren't happy with just a memory of this solemn place. They wanted something to make the sorrow of this place very, very strong. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I explore. Also the idea that men uh, who are in battle will go to great lengths to bring back little mementos of war, often risking their lives. Um, and it's often, an analyst said it, as a way of reminding themselves that they will once again have this normal domestic life. So it's a really complicated thing. It could almost be its own book. Uh, but I wanted to acknowledge that amid the more frivolous and whis um, whimsical souvenirs that there are some very, very serious souvenir rituals out there. You know, it's interesting that the more you talk about this, the we I think I've always had this idea of souvenirs as a commercially driven thing, but it sounds like it is just a deep human impulse. It is. And it goes back to, to childhood when we sort of identify the world by picking things up and holding them in front of our face or even showing them to to older people. And and so I think... And show I don't and think tell. I, show and tell, yeah. And I don't think I fully appreciated that until I went through my house and realized how many souvenirs I had that I don't even think of as souvenirs. They're just sort of ways of organizing um, the world and my, and my life's journeys through it. Can you on the way out tell us about one little souvenir you have? Is there a specific one you have in mind? Nope. Or are you 
Okay, free association. Well, I am a Kansas City Royals baseball fan, and um, I have a little shrine of baseballs and ephemera, especially from the 2014-15 season. I realize it's not a travel souvenir, but it has an emotional strength, as any Kansas City Royals fan would attest. Yeah. Well, Ralph Potts, our time is up. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Gina. Ralph will be giving a reading in Lawrence on April 13th at the Raven Bookstore. His new book is called Souvenir, and that's a wrap. You can listen back to anything you heard on today's show or anything you missed at kcur.org slash central standard. Tomorrow, tune in for a portrait session with Suniana Dumala. When her husband was shot last year in an Olathe bar, she implored us for a reason why she should stay here. As it turns out, she has stayed. We'll hear her story tomorrow at 10. This show is produced by Matthew Long Middleton, Sylvia Maria Gross, Jen Chen, Koi Duggar, and Suzanne Hogan with help from intern Matt Groby. I'm Gina Kaufman, and I also host a podcast called Midwesternish. That's Midwesternish. It's a lot of fun. Up to date is next. Stay tuned. <laughs>